What's happening, food eaters? This is Mel Weinstein, host of the Food Labels Revealed podcast and the self-professed prophet of processed foods. Welcome to episode number 39. This is another show devoted to news stories popping up in early 2019. A recurrent theme in this podcast is the terrible impact that highly processed foods have on our health. I think in the next 10 years, that topic will become front and center in the national discourse as the health crises in this country and others reach epic proportions. Even now, I'm seeing some significant early signs, which I'll talk about later. Plus, at the end, there'll be a fascinating growth story about the fast food industry. For newcomers to the podcast, here's some information about me. I have a 30-plus year background in chemistry education, food testing, and food chemical research. And for much of that time, I've had a fascination, some may call it a brain fixation, with processed foods, what's in those foods, and how they may be affecting our health. I look behind the commercial food curtain at all of those strange, hard-to-pronounce, and sometimes dangerous ingredients that wind up in many of the foods stocked on grocery store shelves. Now, this is a 100% free, on-demand radio program. Don't even think about sending me money. This podcast has no sponsors, financial supporters, or Kickstarter campaigns. All the opinions expressed in this podcast are mine, and to keep it that way, I don't work with any business, commercial product, or sponsoring organization. All I ask of you is to listen And if you get informed, educated, or entertained by the content, please let others know through social media or the old-fashioned way. Word of mouth. Website and contact information will be provided at the end of the show. So, let's get this episode on the road. Every once in a while, I like to do news shows. They may not be as in-depth and research-based as other shows, but it's good to take some time to see what's happening in the processed food industry. I subscribe to a news feed called Brief, which sends me hundreds of links to online articles each week. After sifting through a pile of those, I select some of them for the Facebook page and others for this podcast. If you haven't been to the Facebook page, search under the name Food Labels Revealed Podcast. There you can like the page, and then you should start seeing the posts I put up a few times each week in your news feed. Here are the news topics I've selected for today's show. 1. Appreciating Scientific Research Studies. 2. Ultra-Processed Foods. and 3. The Ubiquitous Nature of Poop. Now, in my opinion... The biggest news story last year came from the groundbreaking study out of France published in February 2018. I reported on it in episode number 26. If you didn't hear that episode, it's well worth going back and picking it up. I think in decades to come, its impact will be huge. The title of the study was, quote, Consumption of Ultra-Processed Foods and Cancer Risk. End quote. This bold and unique study was an attempt on a grand scale to link the eating of highly processed foods with the risk of developing cancer. 
Using some convincing numbers, the researchers concluded what many of us have been saying for many years, that all the chemical junk in processed foods may trigger cancer in some people. I'll give you a brief summary of the results of that study here, but to get a fuller version of it, check out episode number 26 or open the link uh, to the study that I've put in the show notes. The French investigation was an observational study using 104,980 participants. 78% of them were women and 22% were men. They had a median age of 43 years. These people were quizzed at specific time intervals over a two-year period regarding their food consumption during the previous 24 hours. There were 3,300 food items in the survey which were later sorted into categories from unprocessed to ultra-processed. The responses were adjusted for age, sex, height, BMI, smoking, family cancer history, education, and physical activity, as well as, for women, birth frequency, hormone use, and menopausal status. The researchers found that a 10% increase in the consumption of ultra-processed foods led to a 12% higher risk of cancer a 12% higher risk of cancer, particularly breast cancer. The word ultra-processed needs some explanation. Let's say you eat corn on the cob. That's a pretty good food. That is a non-processed food. You just cook it and eat it. But what if you bought a can of sweet corn and the only ingredients in the can were corn and water? That food would be said to be minimally processed. The corn was just shucked, cooked, and packed. Let's go to the next level. You decide to purchase a can of creamed corn. The ingredients on the can are listed as corn, water, sugar, modified corn starch, and salt. Now you can still see the whole corn in this product, but it has become more processed. Not counting water, it is now coupled with three other ingredients. The added sugar is very processed. Isolating and purifying sugarcane is a complicated industrial process. The added modified cornstarch is an industrial product of the breakdown of corn. Let's jump now to still another level. You get a hankering for a corn snack like Doritos taco flavor tortilla chips. This product has listed on the label 35 ingredients. 35 ingredients including oil, salt, flavorings, cheese, milk, additives, preservatives, artificial colors, and lots of other things. And, and it certainly doesn't look or taste like corn anymore. Dorito chips are an excellent example of ultra-processed foods, which are taking over our food system. 
So, that was the big surprise study from 2018 suggesting an association between our modern diet containing high levels of processed foods and the onset of lethal diseases like cancer. Before going on to another important study that just came out in the spring of 2019, I think it's important that I spend a little bit of time talking about the different types of research studies. The ugly, the bad, and the good. Now, be patient with me, because I'm going to get a little sciency here. I hope I won't lose too many of you. I'll try to keep it short, and we'll definitely leave out the math and statistics. You know, every year we get besieged by countless reports and articles about the latest food and nutritional findings based on tens of thousands of published papers in the scientific literature. It's enough to make your head spin. How do you know who and what to believe? That's why this part of the podcast is important, so we can try to sort out the truth as best we can. First of all, if you read or hear about the findings of some latest research, always know that that article or news short is an opinion by the author or reporter. That person is interpreting or translating some results for the general public. The accuracy of that report will depend on the knowledge, education, and biases of the reporter. Most research studies are many pages in length, and the reporter is distilling the key information out of the articles into just a few paragraphs. There are bound to be errors, omissions, overstatements, or understatements, and possibly downright lies, depending upon what point is trying to be made. We all know about clickbait. In summary, be careful about taking science-related articles as gospel. It's always best, if you have the time, patience, and skill, to read the original research paper. That's how you get closer to the truth. In reading the original research, it helps to recognize what type of study was conducted, so you can judge the validity of it. That's what I want to get into here. I'm going to talk about five types of studies. There are more, but these are the major ones, and I want to keep this discussion as simple as possible. The studies are sequenced in terms of worst to best or ugly to good. To make these descriptions seem real, I'll use a hypothetical research topic. Most people have heard about Chinese restaurant syndrome, which became a hot topic in the 1960s. Many people were reporting adverse physical reactions within hours of eating in a Chinese restaurant. Some mild symptoms included headaches, sweating, skin flushing, numbness in the mouth, nausea, and fatigue. More serious symptoms included chest pain, rapid or abnormal heartbeat, breathing difficulties, and swelling. Since many Chinese restaurants used monosodium glutamate, we know that is MSG, a common flavor enhancer, used to be sold under the name of Accent and may still be, many people thought that the syndrome was caused by MSG. The syndrome became a cultural joke for over half a century. However, there was no definitive scientific study that confirmed the cause or causes of the reported problem. Despite the fact that MSG was never proven to be the culprit, many Chinese restaurants removed it from their kitchens, 
I was one of those people who demonized MSG. I love Chinese food, but I was careful to ask restaurant workers if MSG was used in their dishes. For me, I had a different symptom from the ones mentioned earlier. I developed uncomfortable welts in my armpits after eating in my favorite Chinese restaurant for many years, but failing to connect the dots. Was it MSG or something else? I still don't know. But the welts went away after I stopped eating in that restaurant. Study type number one, case reports. Let's say a medical researcher decided to investigate my complaint about eating in a Chinese restaurant. He recorded all the times I ate in Chinese restaurants, what I ate, whether MSG was in the food, and my physical reactions 24 hours after each meal. He then publishes the data along with his conclusions in a medical journal stating that MSG was indeed a problem. That's an example of a case report. If I were just complaining to a friend, the story would be called an anecdote. But the publication in a journal gives it more weight. But this is a very weak study because the conclusions only apply to one person, me. Now, that certainly adds some validity to my condition, but it really doesn't say anything about the general problem of Chinese restaurant syndrome or even if it actually existed. Study type number two, the case control study. Now, the medical researcher decides to expand his research and interviews a hundred people who reported adverse effects from eating in Chinese restaurants. He writes up the data and his conclusions. He determines whether the adverse effects experienced by the study participants were due to the consumption of Chinese food or not. This kind of study carries a little more weight since a group of people were involved and not just one individual. But the conclusions are still not proof of anything. Maybe some or all the people had food allergies or intestinal disorders and their symptoms had nothing to do with what the ingredients were in the Chinese food. Study type number three, a cohort or prospective observational study. A cohort or prospective observational study. To get more definitive information, the medical researcher gets 200 people to participate in the study and follows them over time as they eat in different types of restaurants. He tries to match them up as best as possible in terms of gender, age, weight, medical history, etc. He tells them to record where they eat out, the frequency, and, and any experiences they had over a fixed period of time, let's say six months. He then interviews all the participants about where they ate and what, if any, effects they experienced. He evaluates all the data looking to see if those people eating in Chinese restaurants experienced any health issues relative to the other restaurants. The results from this study may be more definitive since the study group is larger and more steps have been taken to eliminate variables such as prior medical conditions that could complicate or bias the conclusions. Obviously, this type of study relies on self-reporting, which can be suspect since people's memories may not be accurate or people may not be truthful. That effect 
gets minimized as the sample size increases from, say, 200 to 2,000 people. Instead of following the study participants into the future, an alternative method would be to interview people about their experiences in the past. That's called a retrospective study. You could suspect, rightly so, that the conclusions could be more muddied since recall and good record keeping would be even more critical to get accurate data. Study type number four, randomized controlled trial. Randomized controlled trial. The medical researcher wants to double down to get the best possible data from the study. He convinces 100 people to join the study. They agree to move into a clinical residential laboratory for one week. Randomly, that is by happenstance, half of them are assigned to a group which is fed a carefully controlled diet of Chinese restaurant food, while the other half is fed non-Chinese restaurant food. At the beginning of the study, the health conditions of all the participants are carefully recorded, including physiological measurements such as heart rate and inflammation markers that may be implicated in the symptoms. They are fed three meals per day. After each meal, each participant is interviewed about how they feel and clinical measurements are taken. After one week, the researcher collects all the data, sorts it, and tabulates it to determine if the group of people eating the Chinese food suffered adverse effects through their self-reporting and then confirmed by the clinical test results. This type of study is a much better way to prove or disprove the existence of Chinese restaurant syndrome. There can be no bias as to the selection of participants since they were randomly selected. Nobody knew ahead who may be sensitive to Chinese food. The collected data was not based on some old memories, and furthermore, there was clinical evidence to back up the personal reports. All the data from the study was obtained in a controlled environment. Study type number five, single or double-blind randomized controlled trial single or double-blind randomized controlled trial. Here is the gold standard for medical or nutritional research. An example of a single blind trial would be where the researchers would not know which participant was in which group, the experimental group getting the Chinese food or the control group getting the non-Chinese food. In that way, the researchers could not introduce any personal bias into the study. In a double-blind study, which couldn't work in this example, neither the researchers or the study participants would know in which group they were placed. That type of study would work great in the situation where a new drug was being tested. The experimental group would get the drug, but the control group would get a placebo pill. Another interesting ripple, providing even more clarification on the final results, would be a crossover study. In that case, Group A would eat Chinese food for a fixed period of days, while Group B would eat the non-Chinese food. Then, at some point, the two groups would switch, and Group A would eat the non-Chinese food, and vice versa. In this kind of study, all differences between the two groups would be randomized 
and most of the bias would then be removed. Nobody could claim that the effects of eating Chinese food were based on some unidentified differences between the people selected for each group. Okay, food eaters, having explained some basic types of scientific studies, how would you categorize the 2018 French study on the consumption of ultra-processed foods that I talked about earlier? Here are the choices again. Number one, case report. Number two, case control study. Number three, cohort or prospective observational study. Number four, randomized control study. Or five, a blind randomized control study. If you said cohort or prospective observation study, you nailed it. Recall that the French study was based on tabulating the food choices of study participants based on self-reporting over a period of time. But the data was corrected or controlled for based on variables such as gender, age, health condition, etc. But I also said that this type of scientific study is not the best one for researchers to select, since significant bias and error could be introduced. However, Size makes a difference. Recall that the French study had about 105,000 participants. With that kind of sample size, errors, biases, and mistakes can be minimized, making the overall data more trustworthy and reliable. Now we're ready to look at the next processed food study just released in May of 2019. This one is USA-based and was conducted by the National Institutes of Health, also known as NIH. This organization does some serious scientific investigations. According to Wikipedia in 2013, it had 1,200 investigators and more than 4,000 postdoctoral fellows doing research. It's the largest biomedical research institution in the world and comprises 27 separate institutes and centers. In 2019, it was ranked number two in the world for biomedical contributions to the prestigious journal Nature. The article in question is entitled, quote, Ultra-Processed Diets Cause Excess Calorie Intake and Weight Gain, end quote. Here's what the researchers did. They convinced 10 men and 10 women to join the study. They were weight-stable had an average age of 31 years and an average BMI of 27, so they were slightly overweight. The participants were randomized into two groups, those getting a diet of processed foods versus those getting a diet of unprocessed foods. For one month, they were housed as inpatients in a metabolic clinical research unit. After two weeks, the two groups switched diets. Each group was fed three meals each day and were instructed to consume as much or as little as desired. Each meal lasted 60 minutes and the menus rotated on a seven-day schedule. Each diet was matched as best as possible for the contents of sugar, fiber, protein, fat, sodium, and calorie intake. Various clinical measurements were made on each study participant including energy expenditure, cholesterol, hunger hormones, and controlled amounts of exercise. What did the researchers find after evaluating the data? 
the people consuming the ultra-processed diet ate more food, about 508 more calories per day, including about 280 carbohydrate calories and 230 fat calories. Protein consumption did not change significantly. The more food that was eaten, the more weight that was gained. Over a two-week period, the participants gained about two additional pounds on the ultra-processed diet. Conversely, they lost about the same amount of weight when on the unprocessed diet. What type of study did the NIH researchers conduct? Well, if you guessed the gold standard, you were correct. It was a double-blind, randomized control trial with a crossover study. Can't beat it. Here are the conclusions from the study. Quote, Our data suggests that eliminating ultra-processed foods from the diet decreases energy intake and results in weight loss whereas a diet with a large proportion of ultra-processed food increases energy intake and leads to weight gain. Whether reformulation of ultra-processed foods could eliminate their deleterious effects while retaining their palatability and convenience is unclear. Until such reformulated products are widespread, limiting consumption of ultra-processed foods may be an effective strategy for obesity prevention and treatment. Such a recommendation could potentially be embraced across a wide variety of healthy dietary approaches, including low-carb, low-fat, plant-based, or animal-based diets. However, policies that discourage consumption of ultra-processed foods should be sensitive to the time, skill, expense, and effort required to prepare meals from minimally processed foods, resources that are often in short supply for those who are not members of the upper socioeconomic classes. End quote. Notice that they hedged a bit at the end of the statement, acknowledging that poor people are more challenged in getting sufficient quantities of unprocessed foods. That's because we know from previous episodes that ultra-processed foods are cheaper and more available than the healthier unprocessed alternatives. Plus, our government, contrary to the researchers' recommendations, does not promote and economically support the production and distribution of unprocessed foods. There is no lobby for that. The producers of healthy, whole, or minimally processed foods are not center stage in the U.S. Farm Bill. Continuing with the bad news around ultra-processed foods, let's move on to story number two. If you didn't know this already, the U.S. government does a tremendous amount of fact-finding. In 2015 to 2016, the government conducted what was called a National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, where they attempted to discover what we eat in America. The media outlet CNN published an article in May of 2019 looking at a piece of that survey plus a study also published in May called, quote, Preventable Cancer Burden Associated with Poor Diet in U.S., end quote. Here are some of the findings. An estimated 80,110 new cancer cases among adults 20 and older 
in the United States in 2015 were attributable simply to eating a poor diet. According to Dr. Fang Zhang, a nutrition and cancer epidemiologist at Tufts University in Boston, quote, this is equivalent to about 5.2% of all invasive cancer cases newly diagnosed among U.S. adults in 2015. This proportion is comparable to the proportion of cancer burden attributable to alcohol. Further, she said, quote, low whole grain consumption was associated with the largest cancer burden in the United States, followed by low dairy intake, high processed meat intake, low vegetable and fruit intake, high red meat intake, and high intake of sugar-sweetened beverages, end quote. Previous studies provide strong evidence that a high consumption of processed meat increases the risk of colorectal cancer and a low consumption of whole grains increases the risk also of colorectal cancer. The researchers found that colon and rectal cancers had the highest number and proportion of diet-related cases at 38.3%. Also, men 45 to 64 years old and ethnic minorities, including blacks and Hispanics, had the highest proportion of diet-associated cancer burden compared with other groups, the researchers found. Ultra-processed foods occupy a growing part of the world's diet. A 2016 study found that 60% of the calories in the average American diet come from this kind of food and a 2017 study found that they make up half of the Canadian diet. They make up more than 50% of the United Kingdom diet, and more of the developing world is starting to eat that way. People who frequently eat organic foods lowered their overall risk of developing cancer, according to a study published last year in the medical journal JAMA Internal Medicine. Specifically, Those who primarily ate organic foods were more likely to ward off non-Hodgkin lymphoma and post-menopausal breast cancer than those who rarely or never ate organic foods. The last story of this program may make you a bit queasy. From April 2019 comes this article from Live Kindly entitled, Quote, researchers shocked at how much poop they found on McDonald's touchscreen menus. End quote. It appears that the hygiene at some of England's McDonald's could use some improvement. In London and Birmingham restaurants, patrons can order food using standalone touchscreens in the restaurant. Eight restaurants were found to have traces of gut and fecal bacteria on the screens. A microbiologist was quoted as saying that these cause the kind of infections that people pick up in hospitals, end quote. The screen at one restaurant had traces of Staphylococcus, a bacterium known to cause blood poisoning and toxic shock syndrome. The microbiologist said, quote, if they touch their nose with their fingers and transfer it to the touch screen, someone else will get it. If they have an open cut, which it gets into, then it can be dangerous. 
Listeria, a bacterium which can cause miscarriages and stillbirths, was also found on the screens. Three quarters of the screens tested also had traces of the bacteria Proteus, known to cause urinary tract infections. A McDonald's spokesperson said, quote, Our self-order screens are cleaned frequently throughout the day. All of our restaurants also provide facilities for customers to wash their hands before eating. End quote. In conclusion, the microbiologist said that consumers should wash their hands before ordering and eating, explaining, quote, These results show people should not eat food straight after touching the screens. They are unhygienic and can spread disease, end quote. I'm not sure if this is an issue in the United States yet. I have not heard about the self-ordering touchscreens in my locality. However, in November 2016, McDonald's announced that it would roll out digital self-order kiosks and table service in all of its 14,000 U.S. stores. Customers will be able to order at touchscreens and then pick up a number with a digital locator, which will allow employees to serve them at their tables. Has that happened yet? don't know. If it has, then you might want to consider carrying sanitation wipes with you when you patronize McDonald's restaurants or any other places that have these kiosks. Well, it's time to end this news episode. To all you food eaters out there in podcast land, I appreciate you taking the time to tune in. If you have a little more time, I'd greatly appreciate a review, good, bad, or indifferent, at the iTunes Store. You can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed and their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean, which is at www.podbean.com, or just by googling Food Labels Revealed. And of course, you can always listen to the podcast on your smartphone or tablet by downloading a podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher or a host of others too numerous to mention. If you have a question or comment on anything about food ingredients or this podcast or just want to say hello, drop me a line at foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. Again, it's all one phrase here, foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. If you think your family, friends, coworkers, or acquaintances might be interested in this podcast, tweet or post a link through your social media outlets to get the word out. Don't forget that the references provided in this podcast are available in the show notes located at the Podbean hosting website. Lastly, I have a Facebook page that is an adjunct to the podcast. Several times per week, I post a news item related to food ingredients, processed foods, and food trends. Just search in Facebook under Food Labels Revealed Podcast, and please give it a like when you get a chance. I'm not sure about the topic for next month, maybe a quiz show or an episode on hidden ingredients or the investigation of another fast food restaurant. Just stay tuned. Until later, always remember this. If you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. The outro music piece is a clip from Isolated composed by Kevin McLeod.